I'm excited about this passage today. It's Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 5. And I am just, I can't tell you how much of a blessing it's been. I told the, the elders this at our retreat we did this week, but um, to be able to leave town and not preach for three weeks in a row, um, I am so thankful for, for Kevin and for John and for Chris. And Martine's going to cover the pulpit in a couple weeks as well. So we're just truly blessed uh, by our elder board, by this team of, of men that I get to serve alongside. Um, and I'll just, I'll leave it at that. But uh, two weeks ago, John covered a pretty sizable passage in uh, the last chapter in Acts 15. He covered the Jerusalem Council, which was the first all-church council. It was the first, uh, I guess you'd call it an ecumenical council of the church. And John really did a good job explaining how the church leaders clarified the gospel. That was super important. They clarified the gospel while at the same time striving to maintain unity and diversity in Christ in the church. That was obviously a goal of what they were doing. And then last week, Chris uh, filled in the gap between today and, and John uh, when he covered that, that subsequent disagreement between Paul and Barnabas as they're getting ready to, to do another missionary journey or to go back and strengthen the churches. And, and as a result of that disagreement, again, it doesn't say who was right necessarily, but as a result, Paul ends up taking Silas and then uh, uh, going and proceeding on to his second missionary journey. And that brings us uh, to where we are today. That brings us up to Acts 16, where we're going to see Paul and Silas picking up yet another sidekick, uh, this young man named Timothy, who would become Paul's greatest spiritual protege, his greatest spiritual successor in terms of, of leadership in the church. But before we get to all that, and we will, I want to say something about golf. Uh, some of you are, yes, thank you, Dan. You can appreciate this. Um, yesterday, I, I wanted to hang out with mom, and we've been putting off playing golf together for a long time. So yesterday morning, we took a couple hours, and we went and played uh, golf, and I shot a 65. Thank you. Thank you. We only played nine holes. Um, and so if you know anything about golf, that's... I, I, you're supposed to stop counting at some point, I think. I just kept going. I had like double-digit strokes. It was great. Uh, so anyway, we went and played, and really our whole purpose, I'm not, I don't care much about my golf score. Um, I mainly measure myself against other people by height, so I don't worry so much about Does anyone pick up that reference? Come on. Okay. Uh, so... Our goal was to have a good time together and enjoy each other's company, and we did. It was a beautiful day yesterday. We were out like from, I don't know, 8 to 10 or 10.30 in the morning. Uh, but at the same time, I ended up with a great lead into the sermon. So um, I wanted to point this out. As I was thinking about golf, and I don't play much. I've probably played less than 10 times in my life. But it's, it, you can't be a selfish golfer. I mean, I guess you could be, but it just wouldn't work out. Golf is not a selfish sport that you're just going to go do you, right? Because you're on this course with these other players and everything else. So as I was reading the little booklet that they give you to write your scores in, it had golf etiquette on the back. And I was like studiously, you know, what, what is golf etiquette? Like the 90 degree cart thing? They didn't explain that. I didn't know what that meant. And so anyway, I, I was trying to be aware of others. I was trying to pay attention to others while I was out there because I didn't want to step on feet, you know, metaphorically speaking. So in golf, you have to pay attention so that you don't 
do a lot of things wrong so that you don't delay the golfers behind you, okay? If you're behind someone who's just messing around, they spend 15 minutes trying to find a ball instead of just dropping it outside the water, uh, you're gonna delay the people behind you. It's gonna be annoying. Or you could, you could uh, violate etiquette by rushing the players ahead of you inappropriately. And you have to follow golf etiquette to do all these things, to, to maintain the course, to fill your divots. I think that's what they're called. I filled a couple, I made some like, what, what became sand traps in and of themselves when I filled them with the little sand shaker. Uh, but you gotta do those things. You gotta pick up your trash. You gotta remember which ball you're playing so you don't hit someone else's. I was convinced for like three holes. I was like, I had a gut check, I was like, Am I playing a Titleist one? Like, I don't know. I, I was convinced I'd picked up the guys behind me ball and played it for like three. I went and talked to them. I was like, what are you all playing? They're like, oh, we're playing a Carol Callaway or whatever. I was like, thank the good Lord. Uh, what else? You, you, don't, you don't drive your ball into the group in front of you. I had a couple times where I was shocked by how far I hit the ball. And I was like, oh my goodness, that's going right into them. And you're supposed to, when you do that, you're supposed to go four so they can like duck down and stuff. So anyway, and of course you're supposed to keep quiet when other people are putting or, you know, chipping or whatever they're doing, driving. Um, so in this sense, I think the world is like a round of golf. We have to pay attention to others around us, okay? And here's what sin does. Here's our fallen condition that we wrestle with, okay? Sin makes us selfish. Sin makes us insensitive to others around us. Sin makes it all about us, not all about them. That's a problem. Whether you're in Christ or not, you're going to wrestle with that in this life on this earth. Our sinful nature can have us seeing the world through a selfish, self-absorbed lens. It's constantly tempting us toward that. But as Christians, Christ calls us to walk with sensitivity toward each other in the church as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and to walk with sensitivity to our neighbors, that being anyone who God sovereignly places around us in our lives. And the whole reason for that is so that we can reflect the love of Christ, so that we can, can communicate the love and truth of Christ through who we are and how we are through the power of the Holy Spirit. And today's big idea is that cultural sensitivity strengthens the church. Now, we all think immediately about something when we hear the, the, the compound phrase, cultural sensitivity. So that may conjure up good thoughts, bad thoughts, positive, negative, whatever else. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to couch this in Scripture, hopefully today. Cultural sensitivity strengthens the church, and it does that by strengthening our Christian witness and our Christian communities. In today's passage, we can see the effects of Christ-honoring cultural sensitivity, both directly and indirectly, in just these five verses at the outset of Paul's second missionary journey. So cultural sensitivity strengthens the church by strengthening our Christian witness. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. Luke records... Starting in uh, Acts 16.1. Now Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra. Remember, he had been there on the first missionary journey, and they had led people to Christ there and established churches in these places. Remember, Lystra is the place where Paul was uh, stoned and left for dead outside the temple of Zeus. Remember, and the disciples crowded around him thinking he's dead, and he pops up. 
So he goes back to these places yet again. And it says he came to Derby and Lystra and a disciple was there named Timothy. And here's what we learn about Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek or Gentile. And Timothy was well spoken of by the brothers and sisters, the brethren, who were in Lystra and Iconium. So it goes in verse 3, Paul wanted this man, Timothy, to leave with him and go on this missionary journey. And he took him and circumcised him. And then it explains why. Because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So here we see two aspects of effective Christian witness, accepting Christ and acknowledging our culture, acknowledging the culture in which we are to be a witness. So to have an effective witness, we must obviously accept Christ. You don't charge out there to conquer the world for Christ without first surrendering your own life to Christ, bowing the knee to Christ as your Lord and Savior. So obviously, to have an effective witness, we must accept Christ. And this is what qualifies us for Christian service. Do you know how to be qualified for Christian service? I don't mean what makes you a Christian. That's just trusting the gospel, that, that by God's grace, we have salvation through faith in Christ, that he died for our sins and rose again. That's what makes you a Christian. What makes you qualified to lead others? What makes you qualified to lead Christian missions and ministries? And, and in other words, what makes you qualified for Christian service? It's that you have accepted Christ and bowed the knee to him, surrendered your life to him. In verses 1 and 2, we see that Timothy was well qualified for Christian service in the eyes of his fellow Christians, both in Lystra, his hometown, but also down the road in, in Iconium. And in fact, Luke introduces Timothy as a disciple. So he calls him right off the bat. He says he's a disciple, a learner, a follower of Jesus. And then he also tells us that he has a Christian Jewish mother, a Jewish Christian mother. And we learn uh, that, that she and her mother, his mom and grandma, are both believers, uh, Eunice and Lois. We learn that from the letters of Paul. And then what else do we learn? We learn that he has a good reputation in his local church family, and in fact, in that region of local churches. But listen, solid Christian character isn't the only thing we need to be effective witnesses. Of course, that's foundational, but we must also acknowledge our culture. The whole thing about being a witness is that you're plopped down in the world and, and you're meant to, to, to reflect God's character, to reflect the love and truth of Jesus Christ and to communicate that message, but in a contextualized way to our culture. And so we must acknowledge culture. And this is the cultural sensitivity piece in this first part of our passage. It's that we must pay attention to our cultural context so that we can make the most, the absolute most of every opportunity to evangelize the lost wherever the Lord leads us. And he's going to lead us in a multitude of different places, different directions to share the gospel with people that don't have hope in Christ. So in verse three, we see that Timothy had a problem. Solid Christian character, but Houston, we have a problem as we're getting ready to, to incorporate him into this missionary journey, okay? He was questionable in the eyes of the Jews, particularly the Jews in that surrounding region that knew his daddy and knew his daddy was a Gentile, okay? 
So that's a big problem, and that's because of his mixed lineage. Again, his mother's Jewish, and I don't know the history here, but for whatever reason, she is married to a Greek or a Gentile. So he is of mixed lineage. So at this point in Jewish history, Timothy would have actually been considered Jewish because of his mom's Jewishness. This is how they would have thought about it in the synagogues of his day in that first century context. His mom's Jewish, so, but his dad's not. So they would, in most cases, in terms of the rabbinical perspective on it, they would just say this is a, a, basically an annulment. This is a null and void marriage, but this kid is going to be grouped in with his mom and treated as Jewish, okay, accepted as Jewish. But Timothy had never been circumcised. And that is the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So you, you, if they say, yeah, your mom's Jewish, we're going to go ahead and let you in. Okay, we're going to consider you Jewish. But you're not circumcised. His, his Jewish mother never circumcised him on the eighth day after birth. Uh, and subsequent to that, he, he'd never been circumcised. At this point in his young adulthood, he's not circumcised. That would have been a huge problem. In fact, uh, Timothy's mom was a believer, but she was Jewish. Now, again, we don't have all the background on Eunice and Lois, his mom and grandma, but she knew as a Christian, as a follower of the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, Jesus, she understood that circumcision, that sign of the Abrahamic covenant, ultimately looked forward to the coming Messiah, ultimately looked forward to Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ himself was the one who would fulfill all the covenants, including the Abrahamic covenant and the blessings through Abraham's seed to all the families of the earth. She understood that as a Christian, okay? And maybe that's why she didn't circumcise her son. Uh, maybe his Greek father wouldn't put up with it. Maybe he said, no, we're not going to circumcise our boy. Whatever the reason, regardless of why, um, the Jews in that region knew that he was the uncircumcised son of a, of a Greek Gentile father, okay? And, and they would have considered him apostate for refusing circumcision, right? If he, if he uh, had said, nope, not going to do that, not going to take on the sign of the covenant to be incorporated into the covenant blessings, promises to Israel, uh, he would have been considered apostate and been rejected. So Paul, realizing all this, Paul recommends circumcision so that they could more effectively evangelize their fellow Jews. Because remember, Paul's Jewish as well. And he wants to be as effective as, as possible at evangelizing their fellow Jews and reasoning with those Jews in the synagogues, which is the first place Paul went when he got to a town that had a synagogue. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews from the Hebrew scriptures about Jesus the Messiah. And, and so he wanted uh, uh, Timothy to not become a distraction to their evangelistic efforts. He wanted Timothy to not become an obstacle to evangelizing uh, their fellow Jews in these various cities that they were going to go to. And in this way, their, their cultural sensitivity strengthened their Christian witness. The fact that Paul called this out and said, we've got to do something about this, and he recommended to Timothy, Timothy went along with it, and of course Paul circumcised Timothy as an adult, um, that, that shows their cultural sensitivity that was, in effect, strengthening their Christian witness. It was making them more effective for Christ. And I want you to consider Paul's perspective. I'm going to read you a, a 
quite a few, well, five verses from 1 Corinthians 9. There's a lot of places we could have gone, Romans and 1 Corinthians and various places about Paul's view of such things like circumcision. But I want you to listen to what Paul says to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 19, Paul says, although I am free from all, meaning like I, I'm not, I bow the knee to Christ, Right? I'm not subject to you or to earthly authorities or to anyone else. Right? And he's not saying there's not authority structures in the church, but all of that comes out of the authority of Christ over his church. What he's saying is, I don't have to, I don't have to submit myself to any human being. I ultimately submit, submit myself to Christ. So he says, although I'm free from all and not anyone's slave, I have made myself a slave to everyone in order to win more people to win more people to Christ. And then verse 20, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. To those under the law, like one under the law. In other words, I became like one under the law. Why? He says, um, I'm sorry, to, to those under the law, like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law. He recognized that through faith in Christ, he was no, no longer under the Mosaic covenant. He was no longer under the law of Moses, okay? Uh, he was under the covenant of grace, the new covenant in Christ, okay? He understood that, but he went along with some of these aspects of the law in order to win uh, Jews to Christ, just like he had been one to Christ. And so he says, though I myself am not under the law, to win those under the law, to those who are without the law, now he's talking about Gentiles, like one without the law, so when I'm around Gentiles, they don't know anything about the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, the Law and the Prophets. They don't know anything about the Law of Moses, right? So I don't make that a big deal. I just operate with them in their, in their cultural context, okay? And he says, to those who are without the law, like one without the law. Though I am not without God's law, but under the law of Christ. To win those without the law. And then he says in 22, to the weak I became weak in order to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that I may by every possible means save some. Now I do all this because of the gospel so that I may share in the blessings. He's going to share in the glory of the resurrection when we stand with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ upon his return, glorified, resurrected, glorified saints. He's going to have the joy of participating in that someday. And this is why in this life on this earth, he makes himself a slave to others. He denies his own personal autonomy, which is the God of our age. And he says, I'm just going to make sacrifices for others. I'm going to adapt myself to others to win them to Christ. Okay. So Paul knew that an uncircumcised Jewish man in the first century, and I'm going to use a, a modern word that the kids are all throwing around these days, he would have known that an uncircumcised Jewish man in the first century would have been seriously sus, right? You kids know what I'm talking about. That would have been totally sus. You walk into the synagogue in Iconium, and they're like, this Jewish guy, he's not, he's not circumcised? Well, that's sus, right? I don't know if that means suspect or suspicious, or both, I don't know. You adults that have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. So if, if Paul and Timothy wanted to have an effective Christian witness when they arrived to these towns, to their fellow Jews, then they would need to remove any distractions, any obstacles, and that's exactly what they did 
So guys, please hear me. Circumcision wasn't necessary for Timothy's salvation. Okay, that's why they had the Jerusalem council, is to go, okay, is circumcision and obedience to the law of Moses necessary to be a Christian? Big answer from Acts 15, no. Paul vehemently argued against that position of the Judaizers, is what they're known nowadays. But he said, this is a heresy. He's like, to, to say that you have to become Jewish through obedience to the law of Moses and circumcision before you can be a Christian, before you can be saved, is, uh, is folly, it's heretical. Okay, so that's all dealt with. In fact, he took Gentiles with him to Jerusalem to go talk to his fellow Jewish Christian leaders in the church. And no one ever compelled them to be circumcised, Titus in particular. And, and Paul, if they had said, Titus, you need to be circumcised because you're a Gentile, he would have said, no, he doesn't, right? That was the whole point of the whole last chapter in Acts. So, so circumcision wasn't necessary for Timothy to be saved, but it was done, listen to this, it was done for the sake of the gospel so that others might be saved. This wasn't about Timothy's salvation. This was about really Timothy's sanctification, his spiritual growth to come to the place where he's willing to do whatever it takes to reach others for Christ. So how might you and I make ourselves slaves to others for the sake of the gospel? I had a conversation with Hannah, and you probably wrestle with this too, like being a slave to the righteousness of Christ, making yourself a slave to others, that cuts so across the grain of our culture, which again is worshiping the God of personal autonomy. It's all about me being me, not me accommodating myself to you, right? And that's a problem for us. We look at that and go, oh, but I thought this life was about me. I thought it was about me and my comfort and my pleasure and my pursuits and my dreams and the purposes I have for my life and all this stuff. Well, he's saying flat out like it's not. And and immediately that can grieve us. We can go, oh, this is going to be no fun. Okay, I'll be a Christian, but I'm not going to be happy about it. You know, I'm just going to deny myself and take up my cross. Like, there is joy in denying yourself and taking up your cross. Yes, there will be grief and heartache and pain, but not because you're not accomplishing your personal goals for yourself. Uh, it's going to be because you're being persecuted and you've got a target on your back from Satan and, and uh, uh, the world. Okay? So I know this is hard, like, make myself a slave to others for the sake of the gospel, but if we want to reach people for Christ in a certain culture or a certain subculture, then folks, like, we have to be willing to make sacrifices, and we have to be willing to adapt to their culture in biblically appropriate ways. Now, I'm not saying in order to adapt yourself to someone else's culture for the sake of the gospel, you start, you know, leaning into stepping into unbiblical manners of life or lifestyles okay that's not what i'm saying at all but in biblically appropriate ways we need to move towards people and not expect them to always be moving towards us all right so if you're trying to evangelize conservative senior adult golfers at a retirement community a dell webb community or whatever i think that's a golf guy dan dell webb uh if you're going to sun city and you're trying to evangelize like conservative senior adult golfers. And I'm just picked this because I was talking about golf earlier. But what would you do to adapt yourself to them? I think about this because I, you know, we, wa- we wanted to plant congregations and churches all over Greater Austin. That's the Moon Tower vision. I've always thought about Sun City. And I'm like, we couldn't do church like we do church. 
And our, our activities would look a lot different if we we're trying to reach those people at Sun City for Christ. So let's think about this. What would you do to adapt yourself to much older, very conservative, senior adult golfers, okay? Well, you'd brush up on your golf game. That would be a, a, a shared interest. You know, you wouldn't be the guy who's constantly looking for his ball in the, in the, in the uh, person's backyard on the course, you know, uh, like, like me. Uh, you could brush up on your golf game. That would take effort. That would take sacrifice. You could show up on time before your tea time. Don't get there late and make them wait on you, okay? Uh, wear a spiffy collared golf shirt to show that you're willing to adapt to their expectations. Basically, remove any potential distractions or obstacles to reaching them for Christ, okay? If you're going to do that to that subculture of people, don't go out and get a face tattoo and show up in Jinkos late to the you know what I mean? <laughs> Nothing wrong with Jinkos, <laughs> okay? I think I had a pair <laughs> in the 90s. But listen, but then if you have a face tattoo and you come to faith in Christ, then step towards a, a subculture where that buys you some credibility or, or a reputable co context to, to preach the gospel to somebody. I mean, I know it's kind of funny, but you got to think about where you are in life and what you're willing to do or what you shouldn't do to be adaptable, malleable, like Paul was in making himself a slave to all for the sake of the gospel. Don't, don't, don't because of your personal, our personal interests, don't like hem yourself in, hedge yourself in to just this very unique uh, uh, group of people that you can, you know, identify with, Right? And that's not, when we make decisions in our lives, we have to think, how might this affect my Christian witness someday, right? And we need to ask these questions. If you're building relationships with gamers, while we were on our trip, we were in Canyon City, Colorado, and we were waiting for our pizza, and we walked across the street to this, like, gamer's cave is the only way I can describe it. Uh, it was, like, tabletop board games on one side and, like, it was like a land party of like Doom 2 guys on the right side, okay? Uh, and like Halo players, like video gamers, okay? So I was talking to the proprietor. He's from Marble Falls. His name's Wayne. Cool guy. But I was able to like converse with him. I'm not a video gamer, but like I'm a Dungeons and Dragons nerd. I can speak D&D. &D. I can, you know, talk about, you know, strategy board games and stuff. And we had a great conversation. But if you're going to try and reach people in that subculture, then, you know, learn, the, learn about it, you know, find out more about what they enjoy and how to speak about things and such. And that's going to take effort. It's going to take sacrifice. If you're establishing a ministry for wayward teens, then get to know them. Get to know their cultural influences. Get to know their cultural preferences, um, their pressures, cultural pressures, their, their stories. If you're trying to witness to coworkers, you know, be the very best at what you do at work so that they don't discount you out of hand as being lazy or irresponsible. Like, why do we work? We work for the glory of God, but we also work so that our lack of, or lack of diligence or lethargy, laziness, doesn't become a, uh, an obstacle to connecting with other people. Be the very best whatever you do so that you have some basis of legitimacy or a good reputation with the people around you that God placed you around at work, okay? And on and on and on. We can talk about, you know, foreign missions and, and any other culture you can think of. But our cultural sensitivity will help strengthen our witness for Christ. That's my point. 
if we are sensitive to the culture in which we are or the culture that God is leading us to, that will strengthen our witness for Christ. Secondly, cultural sensitivity also strengthens the church by strengthening Christian communities. Would you, would you believe that? That sensitivity to the cultures of other people around us would actually make for stronger churches, stronger church bodies? It's absolutely true. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, now while they were passing through the cities, they were delivering. So now they've picked up Timothy, and it's Paul and Silas and Timothy, and they're passing through these cities. It says they were delivering the ordinances, that's the decisions, uh, for them to follow these Gentiles that they're talking to, which had been determined by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. That's Acts 15. That's the Jerusalem council. So it says, so in verse 5, the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. So once again, Luke tells us that the churches were being strengthened in the faith. That's a theme throughout Acts. And they were increasing in number daily. That's an, also a theme throughout Acts. But the only contributing factor that he lists in this context is the delivery of the decisions that were reached by the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, the Jerusalem letter to the Gentiles about what's necessary as they are coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the only thing he mentions. And those leaders in Jerusalem, the apostles and the elders in the Jerusalem church, they demonstrated and I can't get into, I mean, John did a great job of this two weeks ago with Acts 15, but they demonstrated a cultural sensitivity that would ultimately help maintain unity and diversity in Christ in the church, which would culminate in the spiritual growth of Christians all throughout the global church and the numerical growth of Christian communities. That had a direct correlation to the decisions they made at the Jerusalem Council and their sensitivity to the cultures existing within the church, Jew and Gentile primarily, on the strength, the growth of the church and Christians in it. So, I want to recap some of what John covered very quickly two weeks ago, and I want to look at how the cultural sensitivity of church leadership promoted unity and diversity in Christ. So, first of all, the Jerusalem Council sought to maintain unity without uniformity. So important. And again, John talked about this. They wanted unity, but not necessarily uniformity. What do I mean by that? Okay, in order to do that, they had to be absolutely clear on the gospel. They had to, they had to know what the majors were to major on. Okay, they had to clarify the gospel. And that's exactly what they did at that council. That we are saved by God's grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. If you're not clear on that, if you think there's something else that saves you, you're going to get jacked up when we talk about unity and diversity in Christ. And then, after they clarify the gospel, they were able to make these wise decisions regarding Gentile and Jewish culture within the church. We have no idea in our heads the kind of conflict that existed between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. It goes well beyond what you think you know, what we think we know about that conflict. It was deeply embedded. Gentiles had slaughtered a pig in the Holy of Holies in the temple less, well, 200 years before this, under Antiochus IV, when the Hellenized armies came in and just, I mean, slaughtered them and, and 
sacrificed a pig in the Holy of Holies. I mean, there were deep, deep divisions between these cultures of Jew and Gentile, okay? So what, what the Jerusalem Council concluded was that Gentiles did not need to adopt Jewish culture and practices. They did not need to go through Judaism to get to Christ, okay? Uh, like circumcision, uh, in order to become followers of Christ. So forcing the Gentiles to be circumcised, like when Titus went with Paul to Jerusalem, if you had forced the Gentiles to be circumcised, it would have distorted the gospel of God's grace in Christ. That was Paul's point. He's like, if you force them to do this as, as a, you know, a necessary badge or sign of their salvation, it's going to distort the gospel. And this is exactly why Paul made sure that Titus wasn't circumcised when they visited Jerusalem. The apostles weren't establishing a uniformly Jewish church, even though the first thousands upon thousands of Christians were Jewish. You need to know that. The very foundation of the church is Jewish. All the apostles were Jewish. All the original leaders in the church were Jewish. But they weren't interested in creating a uniformly Jewish church. And their gospel clarity was the basis for unity that served to strengthen Christian community. They understood the gospel, and that's what allowed them to detach from making a church to my cultural likings and preferences to make a Jewish church and then make the Gentiles become like us in order to join it. Their understanding of the gospel allowed them to step back and go, this is not God's intention. And James made that clear back in 15. Um, the council also sought to maintain diversity without division. This was a big part of it, the whole divisiveness thing. So they wanted, they wanted to allow for appropriate diversity without division. Those Jewish church leaders were sensitive to the culture of their fellow Jews in the church. They understood the deep-seated animosity and enmity toward Gentiles. Okay, They understood that culture. They knew that certain aspects of pagan culture in the Greco-Roman context would have been highly offensive and ultimately divisive to the church. Uh, if the Gentiles had been involved in those things, it would have pushed the Jewish Christians away. They would have started their own denomination. You know what I mean? Uh, not to mention, not, not just pagan uh, uh, practices that were offensive and divisive, but they were also sinful and harmful to the Gentile practitioners. Some of the stuff that was going on at the temples, it's not good, okay? Not good for a Christian, all right? So the council prohibited Gentile Christians from participating in some aspects of their pagan culture, particularly around pagan worship. And by obeying those requirements, and you see the Gentiles joyfully obeying these requirements, these prohibitions set out by the church leadership, they, they, they grew spiritually, by submitting themselves to the church leadership and saying, I trust you, we're gonna not do these things you told us not to do. But then they also, in doing so, demonstrated a desire to live at peace with their Jewish brothers and sisters. You understand that? They were willing to put away these things that they picked up in their cultural context for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of unity in the church. And I think that's beautiful. So a little cultural sensitivity can go a long way in strengthening a Christian community. So to illustrate this principle, I want to think about dress. This is going to be fun. How we dress ourselves, all right? If you're cringing right now, I, I, I hope not to offend you. Uh, but in the first century church, there was a tendency to seek unity by requiring uniformity through the adoption of certain aspects of Jewish culture. 
obedience to the law of Moses and circumcision being front and center, okay? You see that tendency toward uniformity that they resisted at the Jerusalem Council? So in, in, our, in modern churches, it's, it's not going to look like that. How's it going to look? Well, it might look like a tendency to seek unity, to think that we're seeking unity by requiring everyone to be uniform, by requiring everyone to look more or less the same on Sundays. This actually happens in churches. There is a certain culture to a local church or a denomination or whatever. And, and we really do feel unsettled if somebody comes into our congregation, comes into our worship service that doesn't fit the mold, that, that doesn't dress like we dress, okay? So, for instance, what if we required all of our men to wear pleated slacks and a tucked-in polo? I grew up as a kid having to put on pleated slacks for church every morning, and it might be why I walked away from the church in my teens. I'm joking. Sin is why I walked away from the church in my teens. But the pleated slacks, I was just not super enthusiastic about. But what if we said, you know what? You guys look too different. Like, we want all our guys to wear pleated slacks. I mean, we went to Salt Lake City. Do you know how many short sleeve white button-down shirts with ties I saw? Right? That's a tendency. Uniformity, okay? But in the church, it's, it's inappropriate. And, and I'm not, if you go to a private school that has a, a, a uniform like ACS or something, that's not what I'm talking about. There are really good reasons to wear a uniform sometimes. Dress codes in middle school and high school are a great idea, I think, for a lot of reasons I won't harp on right now. But I think that that process of learning how to submit ourselves to the authorities in the church, to our parents, our teachers, our administrators, is a good thing. If you're on a sports team and you say, no, nah, I think I'm just going to wear my pleated slacks out on the field instead of the team uniform, that's a problem. So there are appropriate places to be uniform in how we dress, but requiring that sort of uniformity at church services would only create a false sense of unity as all of our current men, including me, your pastor, would leave the church and go look for a church where we don't have to wear pleated slacks. And, uh, and then everybody in Greater Austin that was a pleated slacks enthusiast would start visiting our church and joining. And you'd look around a couple years from now and go, isn't this amazing how unified we are? Everyone's wearing pleated slacks on Sunday. But that would absolutely miss the point. And all of that would be damaging to our gospel ministry, especially, especially if we made wearing slacks a sign of salvation. So let's think about diversity and division now, and I'm gonna keep it in the dress code context. So in the first century church, Gentiles were raised in a cultural context that was offensive to Jewish sensibilities, and for good reason. Some of the stuff they were doing was highly offensive. So these newly baptized Gentile believers would need to leave behind those pagan practices. They need to leave behind some of what they were enculturated into, that had been inculcated into them from, from birth in their cultural context. They need to leave it behind whether or not those things were inherently evil. Some of those things weren't necessarily inherently evil that they still need to leave behind for the sake of the gospel and for sake of unity in the church in Christ, okay? so as not to exacerbate a spirit of divisiveness in the church. In other words, they needed to make themselves a slave to others and adapt themselves to others, okay? Now, in the modern church, it might be that someone grew up in a cultural context that encouraged and applauded wearing uh, really revealing clothing or encouraged and applauded wearing really obscene t-shirt 
messages or something. All right? Maybe that's the culture. I wore <laughs> atrocious stuff, you know? I mean, some of the things that were printed on the shirts I wore was atrocious. I think mom burned them half the time. Uh, but let's say you grew up in that culture and you're just like, well, that's just me. I'm just going to go to the church and become a Christian and be a member in this church. And I'm just going to be me and not worry about the consequences. You can't do that. Some members might see those dress standards as immodest or as inappropriate. And it would be up to the church leaders in a local church to determine what is appropriate. Guys, not for the sake of enforcing some legalistic standards so we can all wear our pleated slacks together. It's not for the sake of legalism, but for the sake of the gospel and to strengthen Christian community and to encourage unity in the midst of our diversity. So we have to ask ourselves the question, are we trying to conform others to our image, whether individually or as a church body? Or are we trying to conform them to the image of Christ? And as we look at our own lives, what practices of ours might be or might become a stumbling block for others or exacerbate or cause disunity in the church, whether explicit or implicit? And are we willing to set aside those things, those aspects of our lives and culture for the sake of the gospel and for the good of other Christians and for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I'll just conclude by, by just pointing out that Timothy's journey began with solid Christian character, no doubt, but also a good reputation in his local church. But then, when the time came, he made decisions and sacrifices to strengthen his witness for Christ. He didn't say, circumcision? Are you kidding me? No. Personal autonomy. He said, no, no, no. Paul, a wise leader in the church, is recommending to me that this is the course I need to take to be more effective in witness for Christ. And he did it. And like Paul, Timothy made himself a slave to the righteousness of Christ, and this gave him the ability to become a slave to others in order that some might be saved. And his cultural sensitivity wasn't about political correctness. It was for the sake of Christ and his church, plain and simple. Um, next week, we're going to continue the second missionary journey as we see Paul and Silas and now Timothy engage culture on a brand new continent when they make the jump to Europe. So we'll see that next week.